We're going to talk about chapter 7 tonight. I pray that I can get through chapter 7 tonight. Um, I don't, uh, I don't know how to say this the way I wanted to say it. Uh, chapter 7 is just a, is, is a really important chapter. Um, and I hope that I can convey to you the importance of it. I hope I can convey to you uh, tonight uh, w- how valuable it is and, and, and the significance of it because it's, 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 it's that important. Um, we looked at chapter 2 last week and the week before kind of understanding that this statue represents the four kingdoms. Okay, the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw represents those four kingdoms. Uh, you've got uh, Babylon, you've got Medo-Persia, you've got Greece, and then you've got that fourth kingdom. So chapter 7 does the same thing. It's just in chapter 7, Daniel chooses, or excuse me, the vision that Daniel gets is just a little bit different. And so we're going to read tonight, we're going to spend some time on the text tonight, Uh, of Daniel chapter 7, and I want you just to follow along as we kind of start out. And tonight, I'm just going to kind of go down through chapter 7. I think that's the best way uh, to handle this uh, chapter. Um, And as you'll note, as you go down through and read it, it's basically divided up into two big sections. The first one is that Daniel gets a vision, and he describes it to you. And then you have this person, uh, this angelic creature, whom is very, very helpful in the second half of it. And that angelic person helps explain to Daniel what he just saw. So it really is divided up into two different things. A description of the vision and then an angel. Daniel's, he's saying, I want to know more about this. And then there's an angel there that says, here, let me tell you what these images mean. And he explains it to you. So real simple. He describes it and he explains it to you uh, in, in specific detail. Because if it was just his description of it, you, we'd be left kind of wondering, well, I guess that could mean that, or maybe it could mean this, or maybe that symbol might sound like this, but this angel that's in here, very specific, says this is this, this is this, and it's so helpful, especially when you're trying to understand God's word um, and not assume things. So let's look here in chapter 7, uh, verse 1. It says, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Uh, Then he wrote down the dream, uh, telling the main facts. And Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Let me just stop here and say a few things. This vision, the first vision here that Daniel has, it's the first year of Belshazzar. Um, that was the last king of Babylon, Daniel chapter 5. Belshazzar was his name. He wasn't really the king, but he was ruling with the king. But in the text, it's, he's the last king of Babylon. That would be about 553 B.C. So if Daniel was taken into captivity age of 14 or 15, he's probably about 65, 66, 67 years of age at this time when he's receiving this vision. So that also means that there's about 50 years difference between chapter 2 and chapter 7. So 50 years ago, he interpreted this dream for Nebuchadnezzar about the statue, the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, legs, feet of clay, toes, everything. He interpreted that. So 50 years later, he's getting another vision. So it's been quite a while. So about 50 years between the two. 
Um, also note that the, the text is very specific here. It says that Daniel had many visions, plural, but only one dream in the singular. Um, for example, maybe you've had a dream that when you wake up, it, when you wake up from it, you know, you're trying to reconcile all the details because uh, they don't make any sense. Um, Daniel uses the term look five different times in this chapter. I kept looking one time in this chapter. He's emphasizing to us the kind of the successive stages of this dream that he's having. He's piecing together many visions to form one complete dream-like picture. It's like when you have a dream and you wake up from it and it's such a good dream. You're like, man, that was such a good dream. And you look at your watch, you're like, I still got time. And so you go back to sleep hoping that what? You're going to finish the dream, right? <laughs> hoping that you get the second part or the third part or the fourth part of the dream. And sometimes that happens and you're like, wow, that's a great dream. Let me go back to sleep again. Keep, keep you know. So that's kind of what, what, when you see the terms, I looked, he says, I looked and saw, I looked and saw, I looked and saw, I looked and saw. You just compile all those together and you get one dream. So it's one big picture he's given to us, but it's given in successive stages, little at a time. So he's about to see a beastly vision of these four world empires. And the text tells us the four winds in verse 2 were causing constant chaos of the sea. It's a continual stirring up. If we were to skip ahead to chapter 7, verse 17, we find that the sea is representative of the earth. And it makes sense because these four world empires come out of the earth, come out of the great sea, it's saying. They don't come from heaven. They come out of the earth. That's where they're beastly. They're, they come from the earth. By the way, in Revelation 13 and Revelation 17, the beast, the Antichrist, is said to rise up from the sea. And that's significant because many people during the tribulation period are going to be fooled into believing that the Antichrist is actually God. But the text clearly saying, no, he rises up from the sea. He is not a God. He's man. Um, and so it comes up from the earth. So the four winds and the great sea, just a little note about that. Look at verse 3. Now he gets to the vision. It's the vision proper. And four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man. And a man's heart was given it. So it says the first beast was a lion. A lion symbolizes power and symbolizes strength. The lion had eagle's wings, which signifies swiftness or, or quickness. Now, winged lions were practically the national symbol of ancient Babylon. They adorned the, the Ishtar Gate. The Ishtar Gate was the main gate that entered into the city of Babylon. You opened it to go down the processional way, the boulevard, the main street of the city. And, and um, as Daniel watched in his vision, the wings were clipped off, it says. And he, it says he in the text, was given a heart of, of a man. That's kind of interesting how they changed some of the pronouns. I can't help, but as I look at this, I see a description of what happened to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. And if you're familiar with the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar was judged for his pride. He was literally put out to pasture. What happened is that Nebuchadnezzar was overlooking, after all of his building projects he had completed in the city, he stepped out into the uh, hanging gardens of Babylon, 
And he looked over all the city and saw this great, uh, wondrous city that he had created with his own hands. You know, it was all him, very prideful. And he says, look at this great city. Look at this great thing that I have built. And immediately, as soon as those words came out of his mouth, you know, God spoke to him and said, no, no, this is not, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, he didn't say that. But no, this is not your great work. Um, I've allowed you to do this. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar is given 12 months to get his act right, to fix this prideful situation. He doesn't. And as a result, judgment is rendered. And so what happens to Nebuchadnezzar, he's basically deposed of being a king. And he's put out to pasture. And it says that he, in Daniel chapter 4, it says this. It says, let his portion be with the beasts of the field and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's. And let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven years pass over him. So for seven years, he lived like an animal. He uh, became the bird man of Babylon, that's what I like to say. But yet God in his mercy promised to keep his kingdom intact during this time. I think Daniel had a lot to do with that, by the way. At the end of his illness, the text says a man's heart was given to him, and God restored him back. See, this, this first beast here, the lion with eagle wings, is representative of Babylon. And it's specific in the text. It notes that, that Nebuchadnezzar is the one. Now, Daniel would have recognized that automatically because he knew what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He was there. He was, he was the chief of the magicians in Daniel chapter 4. He would have known. Um, so the first beast, the lion with eagle's wings... That's Babylon, just like the head of gold on the statue was Babylon, okay? Same thing. The statue is representing how man looks at the world, man's perspective. The beast here is God's perspective, a lion with eagle's wings. Now look at verse 5. The second beast is a bear raised up on one side. Listen to what it says, verse 5. And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, was raised up on one side. And had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said uh, to it, Arise and devour much flesh. <clears throat> now Medo-Persia followed Babylon as the next great world empire. And the bear in Daniel's vision was said to be raised up on one side. So that means that either maybe a side of the bear was larger than the other, like it was lopsided, maybe. Or one side of the bear was higher than the other because its legs were maybe raised up like in a pouncing position. Okay, either one of those interpretations is plausible since they both speak about the dominance that Persia had over the Medo-Persian Empire. The Medo-Persian Empire, while they were a, uh, a dual monarchy, so to speak, in that sense, I don't know how you can say a dual monarchy because a monarchy is one, but you understand what I'm saying. They, they, they were both of, of equal value in this alliance. But media, the Median kingdom was not the stronger one. The Persian one was the stronger one. And as you get further down into history, like books like Ezra and Esther and Nehemiah, it's not the Medo-Persian Empire. It's just the Persian Empire. It's just Persia. It's just Persia. It's just Persia. Because after a while, that Persian part takes over. Another symbol here, the three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. You know, I think we can say those aren't barbecue ribs as much as it might be, but it's a bear. I mean, who knows? I mean, since we're speaking of world empires, those three ribs, they could speak of maybe three great victories 
or maybe three areas of conquest. Um, some have suggested the ribs represent Persia's victories over Babylon, Lydia, and Egypt. But the ribs also might just represent the insatiable nature of the beast. Uh, you know, not being content uh, devours many others. And remember, as we successively move from all the kingdoms, from Babylon all the way to the fourth kingdom, uh, the previous kingdom basically just takes over the territory of the other one. So as Medo-Persia comes on the stage, it takes over the territory of Babylon, and Babylon just basically becomes a province of the Medo-Persian Empire. And then the Medo-Persian Empire, and then Greece takes over the Medo-Persian Empire, and Persia kind of becomes a province of Greece. The third beast, verse 6, it says, After this I looked, and there was another, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. And the beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. So Greece, we know, follows the Medo-Persian Empire as the next world power. And of course, the leopard here, the leopard is already one of the fastest animals on the earth. But then you add wings to it, and it sounds like he's saying this beast is really, really fast, really, really quick. And those four wings denote how quickly it conquered the world. Its conquests were carried out with lightning speed by its greatest leader, none other than Alexander the Great. And within just 10 years, we're told, he conquered the entire territory of the Persian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, and then he extended his territory further as the kingdom of Greece is established. Okay? But then it says in the text that the leopard was also just had to have four heads on it. That's an ugly-looking leopard, isn't it? Four heads on it. Um, the term heads is often used in Scripture to denote rulers or governments or kings. And we know, according to history, that after the death of Alexander, his kingdom was divided between his four generals. So that's where we get the four from. In fact, chapter 8 of Daniel says this, verse 21. It says, The male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that's between its eyes is the first king. And as for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. And we know that when Alexander the, the Great dies, his kingdom is divided up between his four kings, excuse me, between four generals, but not according to his posterity, not according to any of his children because he didn't have any, according to his four generals. So four other kings and their kingdoms begin to rule over Greece. So all these, these first three, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece, all represented one by a lion, one by a bear, and one by a leopard, okay? They're representing the same thing as what was in the statue in Daniel chapter 2. It's just being represented in a different fashion. In Daniel chapter 2, it was about the gold of Nebuchadnezzar, his, the head of gold, and the chest, or excuse me, the arms and chest of silver for the Medo-Persian empire, the belly and uh, thighs of bronze as well uh, for, uh, for, the, for Greece, okay? So these first four, and if you were to do a chart, you could just, you know, compare the two and just see how each one helps better explain the next. So chapter two forms that base of the four kingdoms, and then chapter seven, you're building some more details on top of trying to understand the Babylon kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom, and the kingdom of Greece, now, verse 7, we come up with the fourth beast. And the fourth beast is different from the other three. Verse 7 says, It says, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. 
It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts that were in it. And it had ten horns. I was considering the horns, Daniel says. And there was another horn, a little one, coming up from among them, before whom three of the first were plucked out by the roots. And there, in this horn, were eyes like the eyes of a man, and the mouth speaking pompous words. So the first thing we note about this fourth beast is that Daniel doesn't have any likeness with which to compare it to. He's saying it's different from all the rest. I can't describe it. The other ones, he was able to give a little bit of a description. Well, it's like a lion like this. It's like a leopard with some wings, a bear. It's kind of on its side raised up here. You've got like a lion here with eagle's wings. It's, he was able to give some description. But when you get to chapter, or excuse me, when you get to the fourth kingdom, he's not able to. He can't compare it to anything they've seen before. And that's important when you talk about prophecy because when an author is not able to compare what he sees to something else, he's just left to describe it as best as he can. That's why a lot of your prophecy images and symbolism are creatures and beasts and animals because those things are familiar to anybody from any age. But here, for example, he's not able to describe it. Just like if you lived in the 1500s and you had a vision of a car, how would you describe it? You'd probably say that you dreamt about a carriage that was not pulled by horses. And your family would think you're nuts. You know? But what about something you've never seen before? I mean, so that's what he's trying to do. He's obviously trying to describe the most prominent things about the vision, the things that pique his attention. But the basic idea is that this one here is different from the other three. How and and in what way maybe it's different is not certain from the text. Um, and some people have offered some, some details. But we do know it says that it was definitely stronger, fiercer, and more deadly, it says in the text, than the three. Okay? So it was obviously stronger, more fierce, more deadly, more powerful. But the more notable feature that Daniel kind of keys in on is that this beast had ten horns. And as Daniel was kind of looking at the ten horns and wondering what they signified, it says another one, an 11th horn, rose up among the 10 horns. Now, we're going to cheat, and we're going to go ahead to verse 24. If you just look at verse 24 of this chapter, you get some crucial information that we'll take and apply back to what we're doing here. Verse 24 says, The 10 horns are 10 kings who shall arise from this fourth kingdom. And another horn shall arise after them. He shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings. Now, the fact that ten horns appear on this fourth beast means that these ten kings are ruling all at one time. They show up. They don't come up one after the next. Okay? It's not like one and two and three and four and five, like domino or dominoes to be the other way going down, I guess. But going up, they all appear at once. Okay? They're all ruling at one time. They don't pop up at once. And remember the ten kings, the ten toes, remember? Ruling all at once. Same thing we're talking about here. But the eleventh horn comes up after the ten are already in place. Meaning that it comes up later on in time. Now that little eleventh horn that's here, that's significant because that's the Antichrist. That's the one that comes up and wants to um, gain world power. Now as I mentioned last week, um, I think that after the chaos that the rapture of the church will cause to the world as we know it, um, 
the earth ultimately gets divided up into some fashion into, into ten nations ruled by ten kings. At least that's what the text is telling us. Maybe with different geographical boundaries as the world attempts to restabilize itself. Then another horn's going to rise up, which is the Antichrist. And what the Antichrist does is he seeks to try to establish a peaceful covenant with Israel. And the other ten kings agree. I think that's a good idea. Let's give them back their land. Let's give them back her rights to build the temple. And the signing of the peace treaty with Israel is what begins that tribulation time. And that's all orchestrated by this little horn, by this Antichrist. And after a while, the Antichrist wants to take up control of the entire world because he doesn't like the fact that he has to share ruling the world with someone else, with ten other kings. But the other ten kings don't want to give him rulership. They don't want to submit to his authority. Um, And three of them rebel. Those three that he subdues and he puts these three down. The text says they're plucked up or uprooted. A violent overthrow, a completely removal thing, a removal of these kings. Difference between cutting down a weed, knowing that it's going to grow back, or you dig deep and you uproot that weed, knowing that it ain't never going to come back. At least you hope it's not going to come back. It always does come back, whether you uproot it or not, right? And because he uproots these, these three in such a ruthless fashion, the other seven say, okay, we have no problems with you. We'll submit to your authority. Go right ahead. And he becomes the world dictator. And that dictatorship for the world lasts that three and a half years of the tribulation, the second half, known as the Great Tribulation. But he also notes, Daniel does, that the 11th horn, it says that in, in that this horn there were eyes like that of a man and mouth speaking pompous things. How does a horn, I mean, can you imagine the vision he's seeing? This little horn is like speaking and talking. It's like something you see on some weird TV commercial or something advertisement of something weird and crazy, okay? And the eyes in Scripture speak of intelligence, wisdom, insight. Uh, the Antichrist is not, not a dumb fellow. He's very smart. He's very shrewd. He's very cunning. This little horn will be intelligent, but he'll also have a blasphemous mouth. He'll also have a mouth that speaks pompous things. Now, hold your place in Daniel chapter 7 and turn to Revelation chapter 13. Because Revelation chapter 13 talks about the rise of the Antichrist. And I want you to see in this text, see if you can make some connections here. Listen to what it says. Revelation chapter 13. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. Okay? Just like we talked about, Daniel just saw beasts rising up out of the sea. Having seven heads and ten horns. There's your ten horns. And on his horns, ten crowns. And his heads, um, and on his heads, a blasphemous name. Now, the beast which I saw was, watch this, like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear. His mouth like a mouth of a lion. And the dragon, which is the devil, gave him his power, his throne, his great authority. So John says he's like a conglomeration of things. He looks like a leopard, looks like a bear, he looks like a lion. Well, that's just the three that we just read, the first three kingdoms, okay? It's all there. So John's saying he looks like a hybrid, this weird creature, and I don't know really how to describe him. 
It says, uh, of course, verse 3, it says, And I saw one of its heads as it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Well, verse 5 says, And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for, there's your 42 months, three and a half years. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. So you look down to those verses and you see the complete connection with what just as Daniel just talked about in Daniel chapter 7. That's just one place in Revelation 13. There are many, many more places. Now, look back in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 9. Look at what this says. This is my favorite section, by the way. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire, and a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. And thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books, it says, were opened. So, scene nine, excuse me, uh, the scene here from verses nine and ten is a summary statement of what you find in Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5, okay? Revelation 4 and Revelation 5 better explain what actually happens here in verses 9 and 10, okay? Um, If we were to go through, I'll go through, I, I wrote down about seven. We'll go back and forth. That's why I needed two Bibles to go back and forth today, and I want to demonstrate this. But if you were to dig in into chapter 7, And Revelation 4 and 5, there's probably about 20 similarities between the very two sections. I mean, we're talking 20, maybe more if you start to split hairs a little bit, maybe more. But there are some great similarities here. So look in verse 9, what it says in verse 9, it says, A throne is set in heaven. And I'll read from Revelation, I'll go back and forth. A throne is set in heaven. Revelation chapter 4, after these things I look and behold, a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here and I will show you the things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne set in heaven. Okay, same thing. God is sitting on the throne. Daniel chapter 7 verse 9. The ancient of days was seated. Revelation 4, it says, and one sat on the throne. Then you have God's appearance on the throne. It describes it here in verse 9. His garment was white as snow. His hair um, of his head was pure like wool. His thrones was a fiery flame. Its wheels a burning fire. That's in Daniel. In Revelation, it says, and he who sat on there was like Jasper and a sardis stone in his appearance. And there was like a rainbow around his throne in appearance like an emerald, describing the same things, describing the same things. Fire before the throne. There was a fiery flame, it says. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 5, and from the throne proceeds lightnings and thunderings and and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, 
which are the seven spirits of God. There's heavenly servants surrounding the throne. Daniel tries to describe them here. A thousand thousands ministered to him, 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. So you do the math. <laughs> I have no idea how you come up with a number like that. It, it, it's, it's his way to describe the highest number possible in the ancient world. Uh, there's just so many there. Uh, verse 4, it says, Around the throne in Revelation were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns and gold on their head. Um, it goes down to uh, verse 5, And from the thrones proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and four living creatures, and it goes on, and it talks about, as you go on into chapter 5, it talks about all the ones who are around the throne. Um, let me see, chapter 5, um, Verse 8, there they are again, the four living creatures, the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Um, there's so much similarities here between the two. The books here before the throne, Daniel 7, verse 10, it says, And the books were opened. Revelation 5, 1 to, 1 to 5 is about the book, it's about the scroll. It's getting ready to be opened. And the books are opened. These are, this is just, this is just seven just small little ones here in comparison. If you were to spend your time going through the rest of chapter 7 and, and chapter 4 and 5 of Revelation, you'd find at least 20 different similarities between the two. So what's happened is in Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, and, and maybe bleeding through the rest of the chapter 7, um, that section is more fully explained when John writes Revelation 4 and 5. Okay, it's the same thing. They're seeing the same thing. Thrones are set in place. The throne is set in place. All these things are happening here. But what's truly amazing, <clears throat> I like the simplicity of the verse. Okay, so back to Daniel chapter 7, verse 11. Look what it says. And I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. That's it. I love the simplicity of the verse. Scripture renders the fall of the satanic-led kingdom of the Antichrist with just one simple verse. That's it. It's done. It's over. Truly, God is the one who sets up kingdoms. He deposes Kings at his will, and he sets them up at his will. And when he says your time is up, guess what? Your time is up, period. It doesn't matter if you're the most powerful person on the earth. When your time is up, God says your time is up. Very simple. When the Babylon fell, the end of chapter 5 in the book of Daniel, the great Babylon, the ancient wonders of the world, it's given one verse. And the Persians came in and took it over. That's it. Just one verse. Just the utter simplicity. And yet books are written about the fall of Babylon. And, and, and here, the kingdom of the Antichrist, God says, okay, it's done. It's finished. You know, bye-bye. <laughs> That's what he says. Just the utter simplicity of it. Um, the... Um, the fourth empire, it stated, will be completely destroyed and replaced by a totally new world order, the kingdom of God. Remember in chapter 2, the statue didn't tumble or shatter into pieces until the stone hit the feet portion, the bottom portion. Meaning that those three kingdoms had continued to live in existence until the statue was destroyed. 
So this is what I mean. We who are still living in the fourth kingdom have the influence of these other three kingdoms still in our daily living. So, for example, from ancient Babylon comes our use of time in a sexadecimal time format. Everything is based on the number six, right? 60 seconds, 60 minutes, 360, a little more than a year, you know. Six is the number of man. Babylon is where the ultimate rebellion will come from. Six, six, six. Okay. The Persians are famous for their roads. Yes, even before Rome. Um, and their postal system. Couriers could travel almost 1,700 miles in seven days. The Greek historian Herodotus wrote, there's nothing in the world that travels faster than these Persian couriers. He also wrote, neither snow nor rain nor heat nor gloom of night stays these couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds. And you thought that was the United States Post Office. That actually came from the Persians, as well as taxes kind of came from them too. So I don't know if that's good. Maybe the reason why they were such good couriers is to collect all the taxes. And Greece, you know, there are a lot of things we could say about Greece, the most important of which is our New Testament, which is from the Greece, from the Greek language. Very, very important. So the idea is that those other kingdoms you think about to the statue, your gold, your silver, your Babylon, your Medo-Persian, your Greece, they still were there and existing. It wasn't until the stone hits the bottom of the statue, that fourth kingdom. So there's still some elements of those kingdoms still in existence today for us who live here in, in or during, I should say, the fourth kingdom. Now to the good part, my favorite section, verse 13. Daniel says this, he says, I watched in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. And it says, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not be destroyed, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. There's not shall not pass away in his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. So with these two verses, you know, the grand climax of the vision is reached here. Man's redemption story sees its pinnacle. You know, Christ here is brought before God the Father and is given the kingdom. The ancient of days gives him authority to judge, just like the lamb was given the scroll in Revelation 4 and 5 to judge the tribulation period, to enact all the judgments. Same thing. 1,500 years ago, the church father Jerome was espousing this same view. But listen to the words of Christ himself. In Mark chapter 14, verse 61, again the high priest asked him, saying to him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. Those are the same words that here. And in case you don't believe me, look up Matthew 24, 26, and Luke twenty two sixty nine. 69. Same thing. All three synoptic gospels say the same thing. The passage in Mark here is, is giving complete and compelling evidence that Jesus was referring to himself as the one who would return at the second coming, which means that he was the one who came in the first place, by the way. 
all prophesied nearly 600 years earlier by the prophet Daniel. I like what Chris, who uh, preached, I think, about three weeks ago on a Sunday evening about prophecy, how he, he explained it really well. And I just wanted to remind you of that when he talked about the Son of Man, talking about this, that's what looks strange. It's a Son of Man. It's an actual man. It's a human coming in the clouds of heaven. How is that even possible? Just shows you that Christ is not only godly, divine, but he's also human. The fact that when Jesus comes back, he's going to come back like a man, just like he left as a man. I like the way he emphasized that. So I'll give him credit for that, I guess. Now look what verse 15 says. It says, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. Yeah, I'd say so. If you saw this, you'd probably be troubled, wouldn't you? <laughs> I came near to one of those who stood by and asked him the truth of all these things. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. One who was standing by an angel, an angelic messenger here, I call them the interpreting angel. They help explain everything. Up to this point, Daniel has just described what he's seen. Now, um, uh, and he understands some of the concepts, I feel, but he's still uncertain of many. He asked for more explanation. Look at verse 17. Those grace beasts which are four are four kings or kingdoms which shall rise of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Now, we already know the fact that the beasts represent kings and their kingdoms. But then in verse 18, the angel says, the saints, the holy ones, that's you and I, of the Most High, will receive the kingdom, not any of these other beasts. So the kingdom here in reference is this final kingdom, which will begin with that millennial kingdom on earth, what Christ will establish when he comes back. That kingdom will be given to the saints, to us. By way, the reason for emphasizing the participation of God's people in the final kingdom is because it's literal, it's earthly, and it's going to replace all the previous empires of man. Why would you say, hey, the kingdom's going to be given to you if it's not really going to be given to you in the first place? <laughs> That's ridiculous. It's given to us. It's for us. Now look at verse 19. He says, then I wish to know the truth. He's like, okay, that's number one off my list, all right? Okay, now I have another question here. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine if you had an interpreting angel uh, helping you interpret this dream? You're going to be asking them question after question after question after question. Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, its teeth with iron, its nails of bronze, which devoured, broken in pieces, and trampled the residue with its feet, the ten horns that were on its head, the other horn which came up before the three, namely that horn with eyes and had a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than its fellows. I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came. And judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings, we read this earlier, who shall rise from this kingdom. And another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones, and shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous. Uh, words against the Most High shall persecute the saints of the Most High, shall intend to change times and law. 
Then the saint shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time, three and a half years. But the court shall be seated and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominion shall serve and obey him. Now Daniel obviously gets the symbolism of some of the vision, but what he's most interested in is this fourth beast. And there's a couple of pieces of information here. You know, verse 21 tells us the little horn makes war with the saints and prevails against them. We looked at that in Revelation 13 where it was granted for the Antichrist to make war with the saints. Verse 22 says the Antichrist will continue to persecute the saints until the Ancient of Days renders judgment. We just talked about that. This kingdom devours the whole earth. There's yet to be a time where the fourth kingdom takes control over all the earth. That's a future phase. That's something that's going to happen later on, kind of associated with a one-world government. Also in the book of Revelation, chapters 17 and 18. But then verse 25 and 26 provides some more details about the career of the Antichrist. Um, Daniel doesn't tell us the exact words, but the Antichrist, uh, other passages like Revelation 13 8 and 2 Thessalonians 2 inform us that he would demand worship, allegiance of humanity, which in reality is a blasphemous attack against God. He's also said to persecute the saints. Better translation is to oppress or to, uh, to wear them out. So daily living is going to be miserable for the people of God. Economic pressure will be applied to force these people to follow the Antichrist and reject religion. It says the Antichrist will also attempt to change the times and the seasons. And that's phase, it could have a variety of meanings, but the general principle is that denying religious liberty is characteristic of dictators. But the Antichrist will go beyond what any dictator has done before in attempting to create a thoroughly secular world where there's no such thing as religion. And of course, the saints will be given into his hand for what is termed time, times, and half a time. And that's three and a half years. Now, watch what happens, verse 28. It says, this is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, it says, my thoughts greatly trouble me. Yeah, you don't say. And my countenance changed. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure so. But I kept the matter in my heart. How do you keep that in your heart? I mean, you just saw this vision. You're probably already thinking, now wait a minute. That sounds awfully familiar. I think, I've, I, I think that maybe this might be connected back to Daniel chapter 2 to when I interpreted that dream for Nebuchadnezzar. And he's connecting things. But it says his countenance changed. And, and, and we can interpret that however. But when you read the text of Scripture and when God speaks to your heart, it's almost as if your countenance should change. And, and, and as Daniel here got this vision from God, albeit, you know, none of us are getting this vision from God. God's, it, it's completed. The, the, the Scripture is completed. We're not getting new visions. If you're getting new visions, then... It's not visions. It's something else. I'll just put it to you that way. Just the sheer volume of what he had to take in. And this is just um, the first one. There's another vision in chapter 8. There's one in chapter 9. 10, 11, and 12 are all one vision. So this is just the beginning of what he has to face. 
Now, chapter 7 and chapter 2 parallel each other. The two events, the two chapters complement each other. They provide details not found in the other. But I think the message is also probably repeated to emphasize its certainty. It's certainty. So, Daniel chapter 7, there is probably more parallels to Revelation in Daniel chapter 7 than there are probably in the rest of the book of Daniel. Okay? There's so much there in chapter 7. And I've just given you just a little bit, just a little bit of the surface, just to help you realize that as you read Revelation and as you study Revelation, it's all built upon a foundation that has been set through Daniel's prophecies. In chapter 2, he set it down. In chapter 7, he builds some more details about each kingdom on that, on that, um, on that four-kingdom scheme. In chapter 8, he talks a little bit more about another kingdom. In chapter 9, he builds more on another one. In chapter 10, 11, and 12, another. Okay? He's just filling in all the details. But I like chapter 7. Chapter 7 is by far my favorite because it just means that um, the fact that God is in complete control. And if he's in complete control of the future, then he's in complete control of the present. And all the times in between, I guess we should say as well. And there is nothing for us to fear or nothing for us to be anxious about, although we get anxious. Because if he's in control of all this, and the fact that he predicted through Daniel many of the things that have already happened in history, that should give us confidence moving forward. Knowing that if he did that for Daniel, and we saw how that was developed through history, then that should give us even more confidence. Now, when we get to chapter 9, hopefully I'll give you even more confidence. The fact that if God can predict through Daniel's prophecies that these things are true, then the little things that we worry about on a consistent basis are insignificant. They really are. If God is in control of all things, then we should have no reason to worry, no reason to fear. And I know we don't understand all the details. Some of this stuff is hard and difficult, but it's okay. It's okay not to understand all the details. I don't understand all the details. No one of all these pastors understand all the details. That's what growing, that's what living, that's what learning more and more about continuing to study more and more in God's word is all about. So listen, if God is in control of all this in the future, and he's already planted in the past, then it's time for us to not worry about what's in the in-between, in the middle. And by the way, just know that Scripture always connects Scripture. Scripture always interprets Scripture. We just did it for you, right? How many times, how many connections, how many are there? It's there, it's there, it's there, it's there. So Scripture is endless. There's so much to connect in Scripture. Now, next time we meet, I'm going to probably skip over chapter 8. And I'm going to move to chapter 9 because I only have a few more weeks left. Next week we won't be, but it'll be three weeks from, so it'll be after Easter um, is when we'll meet next for our Daniel study because next week is going to be our Easter musical and the following week we won't have evening service because of Easter. So I'll give you a two-week break to let that kind of cajole in your brain. It may make your brain messy, um, but hopefully... Hopefully, it will help you appreciate how God's word is so, so connected together.